reaching the fault lines of today. Welcome to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. Yes, you have tuned in to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. It is always an honor to be with you if you've tuned in before. Thank you for finding me again. And if you're new, I hope you're looking for a patriotic Muslim, an American who believes that reform, that countering the Islamist ideology, the Islamist lobby, and their hundreds of millions of followers is something that we can do in America, that we should lead in America, and that America needs to take off the gloves and treat Muslims like adults and uh, begin to confront the ideas that threaten us so that our soldiers, our sons and daughters, never have to fight a war again against Islamist theocracies. This week, there's been a lot of saber-rattling about Iran. I want to talk about that. Are we headed to war? Are we not headed to war? Has the president's actions been helpful, hurtful, or somewhere in between? And again, Islamophobia is in the news. What's going on with the lexicon? What's going on with the lexicon? What's going on with the lexicon? (laughs) Anyway, so... Yeah, I think first let's talk about Islamophobia. The, you know, first, the the lexicon. Why did I keep bringing that up? Well, this week, it's as if every day when Congresswoman Ilhan Omar or AOC, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez or Rashida Tlaib open their mouth, they prove either how idiotic they are, how limited their education is, and also how... The Democrats, the left, will stoop down to any level in order to defend what they say so that they don't take on their tweeps, their millions of tweeps. It's just sort of bizarre. And this week was no different. AOC decided to call the detention centers concentration camps at the border. Concentration camps. And anyone who's intellectually aware, academically rigorous, honest, who studied the Holocaust, who, like myself, has visited Yad Vashem in Jerusalem, has visited the Holocaust Memorial in Washington, understands that concentration camps over the last 70, 80 years have become synonymous, have become part of a description of what happened to the Jewish people in Poland, in Germany, Auschwitz, and elsewhere. That ultimately, when we talk about concentration camps, we are talking about the extermination, the genocide committed at the hands of the Nazis against the Jewish people. We can talk about camps, we can talk about other things, but when you talk about concentration camps, it has one meaning. But yet, AOC used it to describe what the United States of America is doing at the border. And understandably, from... Congresswoman Liz Cheney on, people took her to task and said, knock it off. Your minimization of terminology that's clearly related to the Holocaust and to genocide does not apply to the United States of America and what we do at the border to folks that come in caravans in the tens of thousands. And granted, they are basically unarmed, but they're seeking asylum. They're wanting They know they're going to be headed to these detention centers until they're adjudicated as far as their asylum or whether they get sent back or or how they end up coming in legally. 
we have no choice. The Jewish community did not choose to come in caravans. The Jewish community, uh, you can do the math, almost a third of their global population was wiped out, if not more. I believe more. With over 6 million dead during the Holocaust. That's what happens in concentration camps. And I've never seen a rational individual use the term concentration camps for anything but referring to what happened to the Jewish community in Europe under the Nazis. And yet AOC doubled down. And then you saw Ilhan Omar say, well, in her tweet this week, you're taking individuals and concentrating them into camps. This is a concentration camp. I I kid you not, folks, if you didn't see that, she was interviewed walking down one of the Capitol Hill hallways, and this is what she said. This is the brilliance of Congresswoman Ilhan Omar. Folks said, if this is the education of our congresspeople, we are in trouble. And even beyond education, this is no different than Rashida Tlaib's discussion about the Holocaust in which she said, on a Yahoo podcast that ultimately she feels that her families in Palestine basically welcomed the Jewish community, that they, at least their suffering allowed them to build a sanctuary or some other term, I can't remember what she said, which is absurd. They declared war on the Jewish community. They declared war on Israel. They did not welcome them. They did not uh, create a safe haven. And she did that in the context of discussion of the Holocaust. So the Islamists, as well as the far-left socialists who are also anti-Semites, work together in this red-green axis. And part of anti-Semitism is not only the new anti-Semitism of equating and trying to separate out blanket disagreement with Israel, beyond disagreement, blanket ideology that tries to destroy the entire state of Israel, the entire concept of the state of Israel, rejecting rejecting its existence. Any rational human understands that that is anti-Semitism. The Islamists try to separate that. The left tries to separate that, and that's the red-green axis. When the socialists work together with the Islamists, and we see that in the Middle East where you had socialist dictators, tyrants who basically came up through parties like the Ba'athists in Syria or Iraq. Saddam Hussein's Iraq was a Ba'athist national party, national fascist party, socialist economics that ultimately then created a flag that was a green flag with Arabic Quranic scripture on it that claimed to care about the Palestinians, claimed to be Islamic and use Quranic scripture in order to use religion as an opium of the masses and thus worked with the Islamists. Same thing in Egypt. But when they didn't have use for the Islamists, then they'd imprison them and torture them. But ultimately they worked together at times against common enemies. And this is the red-green axis as Russia works with the Islamists of Iran, as Russia works with Assad, as Russia works with Hezbollah and Egypt and elsewhere. So the lexicon, 
the lexicon is being controlled, trying to change what concentration camps are. And if we allow the Ilhan Omars of the world to try to tell us that simply concentrating people into a camp is what a concentration camp is, then not only have we dumbed ourselves down to third grade level, we might as well say that, oh, when I send my kids this summer camp to teach the 10-year-old how to concentrate better, then he's in a concentration camp. Do words not mean anything anymore? Does history not define the terms that we use? If we abandon the history of terms and we allow them to be changed, ladies and gentlemen, we have lost our identity and we're doomed to repeat that history, as wise philosophers have said before me. So, we can't abandon our history. Journalists, I was watching, uh, and I probably should have been sedated, but I was watching MSNBC and O'Donnell talk about concentration camps and showing pictures and other things and doubling down on how at the border the United States has concentration camps. And you see here a gentleman that should know better with a major show on national America, American national television and basically trying to convince me that the detention centers at the border are basically concentration camps, ignoring Nazi history, ignoring what happened in those camps. The lexicon's important. Remember, the term Islamophobia right now has become synonymous, according to the left, with anti-Muslim bigotry. That any time an American whispers or breathes anything that is against a Muslim and disagrees with a Muslim, they're called an Islamophobe, which is a term that has become feared by even folks on the right that don't want to be labeled Islamophobes because it can be a death sentence for appointments, a death sentence for promotions, for recognition, for acknowledgement and mainstreaming of your work. If you're called an Islamophobe, then you get put on a list as a hater, as a bigot. Even the ADL has gotten into this, even some so-called mainstream organizations, the SBLC, which now has been falling into disrepute, but the Southern Poverty Law Center that has famed itself on identifying bigotry and hatred uses the term Islamophobia. And all I can tell you folks is the term Islamophobia is an attempt, blatant, an unadulterated attempt to control the lexicon, to control free speech in the West. This is not exaggeration. Come on. I mean, there's no doubt that there's some anti-Muslim bigotry, but that's what it is. Call it anti-Muslim bigotry. Don't dismiss us and minimize our intelligence by calling it Islamophobia. And then in Europe and England, as they try to legalize these terms and embody them and enshrine them into their laws, the UK has generated reports that are being discussed in their parliaments about defining Islamophobia as an attack against somebody's, wait for it, Muslimness, against their... Muslimness. Yeah. Whatever the hell that means. I have no idea what that means. 
And the Islamists will tell you that that has to do with their identity, their Muslim behavior, their culture. It's all encompassing. By the way, that that all-encompassing definition is by definition Islamism, that somehow my Muslim identity has something to do with every aspect of my music and culture and art and food and and academia and, and study and the Islam as we discussed a couple podcasts ago, the Islamists tried to Islamize knowledge, to Islamize education. And they want to Islamize you. They want to Islamize you so that when you disagree with them, they call that Islamophobia. And they've been getting away with it. They've been getting away with it because Muslims are such a minority and in the United States is barely one percent. Now, in some of the countries in Europe, it's 5, 10, 12%. In France, I think it's 11, 12%. But when there's such a small percent, many Americans who've never met a Muslim, who are, are, are trying not to be, be offensive, are, are, are not bigots and don't ever want to be even traveling in terms that are bigoted, will fall over backwards trying to not be identified as Islamophobes. We talk about anti-Semitism in the, in the Jewish community because Semites are human beings. Anti-Semitism is bigotry against Jews. It's not called Judeophobia, about fear of Judaism. It's hate of a people, of Jews. Semites. That is the evil bigotry that is anti-Semitism that led to Horrific acts of man like we saw with the Nazis and concentration camps and the Holocaust. Ladies and gentlemen, we cannot allow our lexicon to be controlled by idiots or theocrats with an agenda. Together, the red-green axis, a combination of idiots and theocrats, want to control what you say so that when reformers, so that when some of us some of us start to question the ideas that are defined as Islam, then we can't do it because we're labeled as Islamophobes. And that's how I end up a pretty orthodox Muslim who believes in conservative family values and in my faith and my scripture. I end up on a, a list of Islamophobes by thugs at the Council on American Islamist Radicalization. Oh, I'm sorry, they call themselves the Council on American Islamic Relations. Yeah, these, these guys uh, the, every day say things that are more offensive than the, than the previous about my work and about me and libel constantly the work that we do. And most significantly is to put me on a list along with other folks doing work against jihad, Daniel Pipes and others, then they call us Islamophobes. I mean, as a Muslim, come on. I mean, the SPLC had to pay Majid Nawaz $3.5 million in a settlement because they listed him, an active Muslim who's an anti-Islamist, as an Islamophobe, absurdly. So this needs to change. If there's one thing you can do to help me, ladies and gentlemen, and help our work, 
tell people to just just knock it off with the term Islamophobia. We should not use that term anymore. It should be stricken from the lexicon. It should no longer be a measure of, of Facebook, of YouTube, of Twitter. That hashtag needs to go away. And if you notice who uses it, it's used by theocrats at Al Jazeera. It's used as at uh, um, almost every tyrannical Muslim regime of the OIC uses the term Islamophobia in order to suppress free speech. Where are we going from here? Once we stop the use of that term, I think you're going to start to see more free understanding of the ability to criticize Islam. And once you are able to criticize Islam, I mean, do, do Muslims, ask your, ask your Muslim friends, do you want to belong to a faith that has such an inferiority complex that it cannot allow free and open and wild criticism of its faith structure? Because that's not a respectable faith. If your faith leadership and community cannot stand paintings that ridicule its scripture, that cannot stand books that ridicule its founder, I mean, first of all, I think that belies the founding of our faith. The Prophet Muhammad engaged atheists. He did not torture them. He allowed them to uh, constantly have their, their free speech and debate. And said there sh- and and this is how some of the passages and scripture of there shall be no coercion in religion evolved. The passages about uh, um, the Prophet Muhammad being a warner, not a dictator, a warner about God, or the passages about let them discuss among themselves, and there's no need for us to change their mind. It's up to them. And so many more in the scripture. And I mean, come on. We cannot and I think this this is so important. I think if you wonder where the voices of moderate Islam are, where the reformist voices are, we're suffocated by the concept of Islamophobia. You know, Morsi Muhammad Morsi, the Islamist caliph, the emir of the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt, passed this week. And it would have been but a footnote. But what's been amazing, what's been amazing has the rush to eulogize this man by Western Islamist organizations. I'm surprised. I mean, in death, we really do see, in death, we really do see the real colors of the Muslim Brotherhood network in the West. It's amazing. We saw Jamal Barzinji, one of the founding fathers of the Muslim Brotherhood network in America, when he passed the eulogization by the Muslim Public Affairs Council, by Islamicide in North America and others, even though his name is all over documents from the Holy Land Foundation trial that showed that he was listed as one of the primary founders of the IIIT, the International Institute of Islamic Thought, that was raided by the FBI in 2002, had connections to significant ideologues and texts and others that 
radicalized leading leaders across the planet, many of which ended up in Al-Qaeda. But they claim to be moderate Islamists, but they're part of the network. And in death, we see that the network can't help itself. It does the taqiyya, the deception, the simulation in the West very well when we talk about American policy, we talk about free speech. They say, oh, we're about democracy, etc. And then Mohammed Morsi dies during a trial. 67-year-old guy has a heart problem or some kind of medical complication that in which he succumbs to death. Now, I am the anyone who follows my work knows that I'm the last person to defend El Sisi or his party, the NDP, the National Democratic Party, which is a socialist fascist regime, a military regime in Egypt. Same party of Mubarak. Same military tyranny of Jamal Abdel Nasser and said that. Now, as I've said before, as evil as those dictators are, the Muslim Brotherhood was worse. And you saw the eulogization this week in which the Muslim Brotherhood entities, the ideological entities in the United States, tripped over themselves saying how he's the first elected democratic leader in the Arab world. Maybe. Hamas was elected. Actually, they were the first elected ones. And they're still fascist theocrats. They're still anti-Semitic genocidal folks that have a that have a charter that basically cites a so-called hadith. I say so-called because I don't believe it's genuine, but a so-called hadith that is plastered all over the internet that many of the major Islamic schools believe is the sayings of the Prophet that says kill a Jew behind every stone, and they were elected democratically. Morsi is no different. He runs a terror organization with a symbol with swords that says Dying by the way of Allah is our goal. There's videos, there's writings all over the place in which Muhammad Morsi demonstrates over and over that he believes in the eradication of the Jewish people and of Israel. This guy is a terrorist. The Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt is a terror organization. And yet, you see the press releases from the USCMO, the United States Council of Muslim Organizations, which is the coordinating council, basically the Muslim Brotherhood lobbying arm in America of Islamist groups. And you note that, I mean, I read their press release on Morsi's death and I thought, geez, what's the next step? They're going to declare jihad in his name? I mean, it was just beyond over the top about how they prayed for his soul and they hoped that he, you know, the, the Arab world appreciated what he put forth through the growth into democracy, etc. It's just, it's, it's revolting. And I'm sorry, I don't, I, I reserve my prayers for the dead for folks I respect. And I think it's quite revealing when Ilhan Omar says, Ya Allah, Yerhamu. She spelled it wrong and weird in a, in a way that didn't even make sense in Arabic, but that's what she's saying. Ya Allah, Yerhamu. Oh God, may you grant mercy to his soul. When she's talking about Morsi, Muhammad Morsi. Here's a sitting congresswoman. 
asking for mercy for the soul of a head of a terror organization that that basically yes he was elected the egyptian people had a choice between was it suleiman the head of the intelligence ops of mubarak and morsi and a runoff all the probably more moderate candidates fell to the side and then they had the runoff between evil and more evil and more evil morsi won so, I think we, we really had an education this week. You look at the organizations, the Islamic Society of North America, Council on American-Islamic Relations, and then you should see the response. The, the head of CARE, Council on American-Islamist Radicalization, the head of CARE here in Arizona called me scum because I criticized Ilhan Omar for praying and thanking Morsi for his work. Called me scum. And obviously, if I criticize Morsi and I believe he's a terrorist, then I must be pro Sisi, which is idiocy of a fifth grader. Complete idiocy. And anyone who follows my work knows that I'm no fan of Arab tyrants, that I believe that liberty and freedom need to come through secular reforms, through liberal democracy, through American think tanks that begin to push back against these Islamists, and their outposts here in the West, whether it be uh, Erdogan's AKP outposts and the mosques that he's building, like the one in Baltimore, or the Islamist outposts of Hamas, like Kir, or the Muslim Brotherhood outposts, like the Muslim Public Affairs Council or the Islamic Society of North America. We need to counter those, and we need to begin to push the ideas of secular liberal democracy. That's what I believe. And care is threatened by my criticism of them. Last, this week we saw the president blink. And I think that's fine. You know, it's interesting. What am I talking about? I'm talking about Iran. Iran decided to take down with a missile a drone. Now, it's called a drone, but this thing is the size of a C-130, I believe. It's just huge. It's something like a $100 million aircraft, which was in international, over international waters. They decided to take it down. Now, why would they do that? An act of provocation, an act of desperation. Maybe they're trying to increase their uranium, uh, low enriched uranium, so they didn't want any information taken. Who knows? But bottom line is, is they are getting desperate. And there's no doubt that as they're economy is in shambles their regime is getting all into octogenarians and getting pretty old the revolution is growing in steam thousands of iranian americans this week by the way marched in washington thanking president trump for the pressure the maximum pressure that he's doing and this downing of our one of our significant assets which then we had to make sure we get so that Others don't grasp that technology from the ocean. Was preceded by another two tankers that were attacked last week. And then as that tanker had an explosion of a mine, an Iranian boat was visualized going to remove the mine that did not blow up. So the IRGC, which I think very strategically we declared as a terror organization three months ago, 
now is committing acts to try to jack up the price of oil, try to destabilize the region and American interests and Western interests, and also in many ways poke their finger in the eye hoping that something may happen to then, I think, create a war situation in which they can then unify their people, or at least their supporters, against the foreign enemy in a Machiavellian way. Now, it's interesting, they're also noticing that the people are no longer saying death to America, death to Israel. They're saying death to the Khomeinis, death to the regime. And I think that's significant. That's significant because they are on their heels. And we may be witnessing, ladies and gentlemen, the last breaths this year or into next year of this regime. So, President Trump, when asked about the downing of our drone, said... Wait, wait, and you'll see what's going to happen now. Maybe he shouldn't have said that. Because then the next day he tweets out that 10 minutes before he was going to launch a military response, he decided not to. He didn't have to say why, but he decided he wanted to say why. And he said, well, because his military generals told him that 150 people would die and that was disproportionate, that the downing of an unmanned drone was a disproportionate response to kill 150 people. Now, I'm not sure I understand, A, why the commander-in-chief is laying out all these details, and B, why our only response was to target assets that would then result in human costs. There's got to be assets that we can continue not only to sanction, but target, which are asynchronous assets of terror organizations, be it Hezbollah, the Houthis, or other aspects of their technology and command and control that is unre- that has non-human costs associated with it. That would have been my two cents. But I do think that it's very different than the red line that President Obama drew against a genocidal tyrant in Syria that used chemical weapons against human beings, and we told him he could not do that, as did the UN and others in the free world that told him he cannot, should not, and and should never repeat it, and he continued to do so, and we then backed down. A drone going down is nowhere near that same type of line. Now, I think the president showed restraint. I think Iran knew that we were going to respond, and then we didn't. People say that, well, this emboldens them. I don't think so. I really don't. I think they're going to continue to be bad actors, like a kid having a tantrum, tantrum, And I think we're seeing some settling out of positions in this conflict. And I I agree that we should increase the presence of our DOD in the Straits of Hormuz, begin to do ship escorts, as has happened before in the past. In 87, 88, there were constantly ship escorts in the Straits to prevent attacks. There was a brinksmanship. And it's amazing to me, the anti-Trump journalists, the, they constantly blame Bolton, John Ambassador John Bolton, now National Security Advisor. He seems to be blamed for brinksmanship. But never mind the fueling of terror by Iran and Syria with tens of thousands dead. Never mind the fueling of terror in Yemen as the Houthis are armed into terror operations. Never mind the attacks on oil tankers, six in the last few weeks. Never mind the downing of our drone. No, 
a response would then be Bolton's fault because it's somehow neocon warmongering. It's just bizarre. It's irrational. Yeah, I agree it's too soon to go to war. War with Iran needs to have an endpoint. And I don't think we're going to need to. I think we shore up our defenses. We we continue to contain them. Secretary Mnuchin was right this week in which he began to even not only have tighter sanctions, but began to punish them for a lot of the laundering mechanisms. of finances and monies, etc. Remember, during the sanctions back during the Obama administration, they were bypassing sanctions by buying and selling gold through Turkey and Russia and elsewhere. And now they were using other mechanisms of laundering that overnight was shut down in pathways that Secretary Mnuchin was able to find in his Department of Treasury. Yes, I think we need to begin escorting tankers and other ships. We need to have some asynchronous response to assets, terror assets that Iran may have. But we cannot blink again. Blinking might have been appropriate. I think, yes, it was. I don't know about the president's articulation that 150 people would have died. That wasn't wise, in my opinion, to be talking about. Let alone it doesn't really make sense that that's the only option he had. We'll continue imposing crippling sanctions. And we'll continue to pray that the revolution in Iran gain more steam because that's the best anti-nuclear program. That's the best pathway. I don't think they'll ever sit down and negotiate with President Trump's administration. They might, but I doubt it. It's not in their DNA. It's not in their eschatology. They see themselves as, as, as theocrats who are ushering in the 12th imam, the end of times in the Middle East. They see themselves, and this is why we had to pull out Contractors of Northrop Grumman and, and, and other defense contractors in Iraq because they were being threatened. Iraq has now basically become a Iraq has basically become an arm of Iran with a Shia crescent that goes from Iraq into Syria into Hezbollah and with Lebanon. This is a Shia crescent. We lost Iraq because the Obama administration pulled away all the troops that were providing stability into that democracy. And that democracy now has devolved back into Shia control and now is a quasi-theocracy. Except in the Kurdistan areas. We shouldn't take the bait for war, but we should leave it on our radar, as folks like Adam Kinzinger and others said, that that is the best tool of prevention is that they believe and they know that we will act if we have to. And we need to contain what they're doing in Syria. His maximum pressure campaign needs to continue to work, giving authorities in Tehran either a diplomatic out or resorting to military force that will backfire in the long term. Yeah. They if Iran resorts to military force, they need to know it'll backfire. And I don't think they think for a second they could ever win a conflict against the United States. But they continue to think that this president, I think less than the previous, even though this president campaigned on not going to war, the previous president they knew would never go to war. He backed down from his own shadow. But Iran has tasted the taste of no sanctions 
money flowing openly as they began to see airlines and other industries begin to populate Tehran. And they said, oh my, we can fuel our beast of an economy. Not the economy, but fuel the beast of the theocracy. And then that was taken away because they basically, that deal was not a deal. It was horrific. And President Trump now is containing them. His administration is containing them. And I think this is a continued defensive posture. Nobody's calling for war. Nobody believes that we're going to be in war with Iran, but the media, the anti-Trump media, wants you to believe that all these provocations are all about the United States, not about Iran and what they're doing and what's happening domestically. Notice we're not hearing on any coverage of Iran anything that's happening actually domestically because the Khomeinist lobby in Washington is influencing what gets put on NBC and CNN and so-called mainstream media. But the prices have not gone up significantly in oil because there's still, I think, significant confidence in the way this administration is handling the situation. I do believe that, regardless of how inarticulate some of the responses have been. So, a lot to talk about, a lot to think about. But realize, ladies and gentlemen, that if you want to hear clarity, you want to no longer get apologetics and excuses for Islamists, come to this podcast. Tell your friends about it. Subscribe on SoundCloud, on iTunes. Subscribe at blazetv.com backslash podcast. And join us at Reform This every week, released on Saturday at noon. It's always great to be with you folks. This is Zudi Jasser on Reform This. God bless. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network.